welcome to the vaccination station my name is dave and today i'm speaking with dr jonathan howard welcome to the show hey thanks so much for having me i really appreciate it let's start by getting to know you can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting all right so let's see um i once played a baseball game in yankee stadium that was pretty cool. Not for the Yankees, uh, unfortunately, but I've made an all-star college team. So that was kind of fun. I grew up in Florida, uh, the northern part of the state. And in my front yard, there's a creek that kind of acts like a natural excavator. So I used to go down there and find hundreds, I still have them, of shark's teeth, you know, that are 10 billion years old. You know, they're now 100 miles away from the shore. They're not 10 billion, but, you know, millions of years old. So I have this massive shark's tooth, you know, ancient fossilized shark's tooth collection. Um, now, uh, when I'm not working, all I do is write and play guitar. So I've, I've, uh, I've been playing a, a lot of guitar. And every time I think I'm good, I hear someone who is and I realize I'm not. I heard John Mayer play last night at Madison Square Garden. And oh, my God. Uh, I'm not that good. He's amazing. So anyway, <laughs> so there are three things. Thank you. That's that's really terrific. Yeah, and having been born in Florida, what can you tell me about the Florida man stereotype? How accurate is it? So well, it seems to be pretty accurate. Um, you know, there's something about the place that seems to draw people who don't know how to behave. I mean, one thing that's interesting about Florida, and actually this is probably true of of, of most states here in the uh, in the U.S., is that there are really multiple different states in one. So in Southern Florida, you have Miami, which is you know glitz and you know a lot of Cubans and gay culture, although it's you know a pretty conservative city. Uh, then you go a little bit north and you have all these swamps and all the retirees. Then you go a little bit north and you go into, uh, actually a lot north, you get into Orlando and Disney World. And then you get to where I live in the northern part of the state, which is kind of forests and the deep south. And, um, you know, so it's, it's very, you know, not tropical, uh, you know, so it's very, very different, multiple different states in one. Yeah, I, I tend to forget that uh, Florida being such a long state actually has multiple, well, almost multiple climates within it due to its its position um, geographically. Whereas where I am in South Australia, we just have, a, you know, it's it's the driest state in the country and, and it's pretty hot most of the year round. It's a very Mediterranean, Mediterranean climate here rather than a, um, a humid one or a tropical one. But yeah, some some states like that. Um, Western Australia, where I'm from, is actually similar. It's the it's the largest state in Australia. It's about a third of the country, and so down down south, it's much cooler. Used to be a big big whaling town down there. It's a town called Albany. Uh, but whereas up north, you go up north, and you're full on tropical, right on the border of the Tropic of Capricorn. You can grow just about any tropical fruit easily by throwing a seed out the window, practically. Um, and you've got pearl divers and all that kind of thing going on. So it's a completely different climate altogether. Yeah, really fascinating. Well, hopefully, I'll make it there one day. There's a surprising number of vaccine advocates <laughs> that I've gotten to know from Australia. So uh, that, that's really good to hear. Yeah, no, it is We're, good for um, you guys. We're small, but we do our best. Although I've got to say the the job down here is much easier because our anti-vax community is very, very small and public sentiment is typically overwhelmingly in support of vaccination here in Australia. In fact, when the, when the 2016 no jab, no pay legislation came in, which was a very strict 
um, federal legislation which abolished all exemptions except medical ones, that was supported by about 82% of the country. So it's it's not so difficult to, to be a vaccine advocate down here. I've, most of my work is actually done online because that's where the real crazies are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. So where did you study and what are your qualifications? So I went to medical school at the University of Southern California, USC. Um, but I've been at NYU, New York University in Bellevue for the past uh, 20 years. It's a long time. My 20th anniversary is, is here. Bellevue is the oldest public hospital in New York City. And NYU is right next to it. And it's kind of an interesting thing that you have two different hospitals that serve entirely different populations within a two minute walk of each other. You can get from one to the other. Just that's a very unique kind of thing about New York City. And I'm a neurologist and a psychiatrist. So my professional life doesn't interact with vaccines a ton, um, aside from the fact that, you know, before COVID, I encouraged my patients to get them, but it was not a routine part of, uh, of what I did. And the main disease that I study is uh, MS, uh, which may soon become a vaccine preventable disease if indeed, you know, Epstein-Barr vaccines <laughs> prevent MS. It'll take years and decades to prove that, but uh, it, it's possible I may be one of the last uh, generation of doctors to treat this disease, which would be a wonderful thing. Um, in terms of treating vaccine preventable diseases, yeah, I've seen patients with polio, you know, either they uh, came from outside this country or they were, you know, in their 60s and 70s, older polio survivors. So I've seen polio. Uh, I, I did see one case of uh, a rare complication of measles, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, uh, which is an, a fatal disease. So I saw that once. Really the only disease, uh, vaccine preventable disease that I treat with any regularity is shingles, uh, of course, you know, very common disease. Um, with, I think, a very benign sounding name, given what, what it can do, you know, shingles almost sounds like a, a kid's game. And in fact, in other languages, it's called, uh, you know, I once read this article about, it, you know, ring of fire, our snakes bite, you know, these, these sort of horrible things. Um, and in addition to the horrible, painful rash that almost everyone gets. Uh, I've seen it cause blindness. I've seen it get in people's eyes. I've seen it cause strokes. I've seen it cause spinal cord problems. So, you know, this taught me that vaccine preventable diseases really aren't always that benign. You know, they're not, you know, they're not benign childhood illnesses, you know, that every kid, you know, just stays in bed for a couple of days drinking uh, soup and then, then they get better. In terms of the anti-vaccine movement, um, uh, I became very interested in that about a decade ago when a doctor who I trained with, a, a woman by the name of Dr. Kelly Brogan, uh, became one of America's leading anti-vaccine stars. And I only knew her professionally. You know, we had a lot of lectures together and worked together, uh, you know, treating patients and she was, you know, nice and, and we were friendly. So there's no, no personal, uh, you know, uh, animus there. And I haven't really spoken to her in probably a 12 years or so. Um, but just I, I began to see her morph into this absurd anti-vaccine advocate and, and really just reject all of evidence-based medicine in a very explicit way, which is interesting because she's not stupid. She went to Cornell. She went to MIT. You know, she 
you know, passed exams and got into medical schools and got into good residencies. Um, and, you know, but she just embraced the rankest pseudoscience. And I don't know how many of your listeners are going to know of her, but you should look her up, look up some of her videos. You know, she's a very compelling public speaker who was platformed by Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's pseudoscience uh, organization and a very popular festival here called South by Southwest, which I think is in Texas every year. Uh, so she, she got a, a decent amount of attention um, by saying crazy things that viruses don't even cause illness, that HIV does not cause AIDS, that coffee enemas cure cancer, that vaccines cause everything. So just the, just the sort of in, in, insane stuff. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but uh, in many ways, her ideas and her approach towards vaccine preventable diseases won the pandemic here in the United States, at least with regards to children and young people. Uh, her ideas became started coming out of the mouths of doctors at, at top universities they have no clue that they're echoing her and they would you know wildly reject that they have anything to do uh with her sort of pseudoscience but they're wrong the the one difference is dr brogan kind of to her credit uh doesn't always pretend that all of her ideas are based in science. So she will talk a lot about sort of intuition, you know, your your inner compass and tarot cards and, you know, other higher ways of knowing, um, which which distinguishes her from some other doctors who I'm sure that we're going to talk about. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, I am fairly familiar with Brogan. I have actually produced an infographic on her as part of my False Authorities series. And it goes through all her, her main issues. She's basically uh, a germ theory denialist now, and she's an HIV denialist. Uh, as you say, the extent of her quackery is quite extraordinary, considering she was a properly trained medical professional. And it just never ceases to confuse me how someone who comes from that background can descend so rapidly and thoroughly into pseudoscience because it's not it's more than just unlearning what you've learned it's simply ignoring what you must know from professional experience to be true so i, I just don't see how someone can rewire their their thinking in that way um I, without I don't some sleight a... of hand you know yeah, I, I don't have a good explanation. I mean, I think part of it is that she is completely sheltered from the consequences of her words, meaning uh, you will much find, you know, she is much more likely to be seen uh, on a stage or doing what we're doing now, talking in a podcast uh, than at a patient's bedside. So, you know, I'm on podcasts, I don't know, a handful of times a year. That's all she does. Um, you know, she's she's sort of a professional media maker. And you will never, ever, ever, and this has been true for the past decade, if not longer, see her taking care of a sick person in the hospital. But I think once something gets turned on about, you know, people's conspiratory, you know, there's some sort of light switch that gets turned on where everything becomes a conspiracy theory. So she was, you know, talking about, of course, you know, vaccines being a way for Bill Gates to depopulate the world and uh, you know, when COVID struck that, 
you know, all of these sort of restrictions were just a prelude to the Holocaust. And, you know, essentially everything was going on was Nazis. And, you know, if we don't fight for our rights, they're going to be marching us into camps any day now. So I, I think once that, and it's fun to be a hero, right? Like, um, you know, I don't think of myself as a, as a, as a hero, uh, you know, fighting these amazingly evil sometimes i do actually but you know but yeah you know i'm not i'm not like saving the world i don't pretend to have these amazing insights that everyone else sort of lacks you know so it's very sort of ego gratifying to feel that you have this special insight that doctors like me lack that i'm i'm asleep i'm just you know only know what I was taught in medical school and never really think deeper about it. I'm not willing to think for myself, but here she is, this brave, independent person willing to stand up, you know, for the truth against big, evil Pfizer, Bill Gates. I mean, you know, what a wonderful thing to think of yourself in such a heroic way. Yeah, I can see how that would be uh, be very attractive. And uh, of course, cognitive dissonance can paper over a, a lot of cracks when it needs to. So, you know, once you're that deep down the rabbit hole, you can convince yourself that what you're saying is true and that what you're doing is justified. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I think she honestly believes this. I don't think she secretly vaccinated herself. I don't think that she secretly vaccinated her children. You know, and there's a germ of truth to what she's saying, you know, that that when we were in our psych training, uh, drug company doctors or drug company representatives did take us out to dinner on occasions. And, you know, so, you know, I didn't go to those. I went to a couple and then I stopped going. But a lot of my friends would go out to, uh, you know, fancy dinners, you know, every week sponsored by drug companies. And, and, and that upset her. And she was right to be upset by that. And so, so there's a grain of truth in some of what she says. Um, and, but I think that just let things sort of spiral out of control that if one drug company does one bad thing, every drug company does every, you know, every product that's ever been made by a pharmaceutical company is bad by my supplements. So. So what was it that attracted you to science as a career? So. I'm not a scientist. I'm a doctor. And I think it's a little bit important to make that distinction. I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I'm, I'm treating sick people in the hospital uh, or in my, my MS clinic. Um, you know, I do do some research on the side. And really the only field of medicine that I think I could be happy doing is the one that I'm doing, neurology and psychiatry, because I, it's just fascinating how the brain works, how people think. And, you know, I think actually my vaccine advocacy and my interest in vaccines is actually pretty related to that. Um, because when I see patients with neurological disorders, um, I, I always wonder what it, what's it like to be them when they when they lose the ability to speak or they have hallucinations and delusions. What what is their subjective experience like? And in some ways that that's parallels why I became interested in the anti-vaccine movement. Like, what is it that let, you know, why did Kelly Brogan, you know, start to believe these sort of crazy things and other doctors like her? I mean, there's not a huge group, they're a vocal group, um, and there's a lot more of them now. Um, but what is it about them that, uh, as you said, made them not just learn new things, but undo you know, reject what's been true, you know, what we've known in medicine for the past, you know, 100 and germ theory, 150 years or so. Um, I'm not sure I'm closer to finding that answer. Um, but I, I did through the course of, of studying her, her stuff and other stuff, 
you know, really learn about all of this cognitive traps and cognitive flaws and biases that are just so pervasive in the anti-vaccine movement. So I, I, it, it's actually part and parcel, I think, of why I'm interested in neurology and psychiatry is why I'm interested in the anti-vaccine movement. That certainly rings true with my limited experience as a, an online uh, vaccine advocate, because to me, I'm I'm not I, I don't have a, a scientific or medical background. So I, I studied philosophy at uni. So to me, a lot of this boils down to epistemology. How do people build up their worldview? What are the tools that they use to construct their worldview? Are some of those 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 tools flawed? Um, is their method flawed? Are they sort of only ever seeking out um, information that affirms what they already believe? Do they have some circular methods of thinking that just reaffirm what they already believe is true rather than actually providing them with evidence or, or facing new evidence that might confront them? Do they have some way of blanking that out? I'm particularly fascinated with the way people construct their worldview because the the question of how that's done to me gets at the root of how and why people can defy evidence that's presented to them and explain it away, rationalize it away. And, you know, people do that in many different contexts. People do that when they're very fixated on one particular uh, notion of of religion or politics, you know, it, it it's not limited to any particular sphere of human life. It's 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 uh you know it's universal. But to me, the the big question is how do people arrive at their conclusions uh, conclusions, and how do they construct their worldview, and are there better tools that we could provide them that would help to break them out of this this cycle of getting trapped in false information. And that I think ties in quite neatly with with the kind of approach and and the work that you're doing, looking at the way the mind works, looking at the way it functions and trying to rationalize and figure out how, how these things are happening in people's brains that lead them to these conclusions. Yeah, and, and a very important thing to realize is we're vulnerable to all of these biases. So learning about Kelly Brogan, one reason to learn about people like her so you don't wind up her like her. So, for example, you said, you know, do these people seek out information that confirms their biases? Well, we all do that. You know, I'd much rather listen to, you know, some someone, you know, some of the people who you've interviewed before in your podcast uh, than any one of her podcasts. I would find it painful. I would find it unpleasant, even though you know, perhaps hearing certain people speak who I've heard speak before, I'm not going to learn anything new, but it's very validating. It makes me feel good. So you have to to learn to sort of combat uh, this idea that something is true because uh, you want it to be true and that something is false because you don't want it to be false. Uh, you know, and it's a very tough balance between what I'm saying now, having an open mind, uh, but as the famous expression goes, you need to have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. So being open, but being skeptical, not willing to believe everything. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a challenge and none of us are immune to uh, these biases. 
And the only people who can reveal your biases to you are other people. So, you know, I don't think I'm biased about anything. No one does. I think I'm right about everything. And of course I do, because if I, if I knew what I was wrong about, I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe it anymore. So it's really only people who disagree with you uh, who can point out your errors. And it's very, very, very hard. And I'm not perfect at this to, to, to listen to people who disagree with you and criticize you. Uh, you know, you ha they have to be coming from a place of good faith, of course, which I think is not not too common online. Uh, but if someone, you know, really sort of tries to say I'm wrong or steer me in, you know, that I'm going in the wrong direction, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to listen and hope they listen to me. So speaking as a doctor, what do you find most exciting and enjoyable or re rewarding about your work? So being a neurologist, we kind of pride ourselves on some of the last doctors who really value old school medicine, talking to patients and examining them. You know, we sort of pride ourselves on being doctors who can, you know, by the time we're, you know, done talking to patients and examining them, we know exactly what's wrong with them. Um, we know exactly where the problem is. This isn't always true, of course. We have a lot of tests and, 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 and MRIs. So I enjoy that. We have a ton of rare diseases in our field, which is very humbling. I do love looking at images and MRIs and trying to link the, the MRI in front of me with the, the, with the patient in front of me. And you have a different relationship when you're dealing with people's brains. Um, you know, when, when you're dealing with someone's heart or lungs, you know, you can kind of dissociate yourself from that. I am not my heart. I am not my lungs. But when you're dealing with people's brains, that's really who they are. Uh, the big knock on the field is that there's not a lot that you can do for a lot of these diseases. And that's true. Uh, if someone has Parkinson's, MS, uh, Alzheimer's disease, you, you can't cure those. But I've seen amazing progress in at least some of these fields over the relatively short time of my career. Uh, I've been treating MS uh, for the past uh, 12 years or so. And while a lot of progress needs to be made, it's a totally different landscape than it was uh, when I started in 2010. And not too many other uh, fields of medicine can say that. So I think that's that that's what makes it very interesting. And it's not very gross. Uh, I'm at a point in my career where I can say that. I think phlegm and snot and boogers and poop are pretty gross. So I don't deal with that. And I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> that that's really great to hear yeah my my grandmother had <laughs> alzheimer's and she had it right up to you know to the to the day she died and it was it was quite it was quite shocking really to see how parts of her just seemed to fall away over over the years parts of who she was just weren't there anymore and parts of what she used to know just seemed to evaporate and yet Despite that, she, you know, she could forget that she'd put out a cup of tea five minutes ago, and yet she could recall something that she had done during her stage career or her radio career 50 years ago with perfect clarity. It, it was just really strange and and um, and quite humbling because it, it brings home to you the daunting complexity of the human mind and just how much further we've got to go to unravel all its secrets. I mean, I, of course, I, I speak as a layman. Obviously, you you know much more of its secrets than, than I do. Yeah. But, uh, I yeah, I found it quite um, a challenging experience, if I can put it that way. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, 
I, I hopefully know more than someone who's not a neurologist, but the big questions I still don't an, have an answer to. Uh, how does this three to four pound thing of flesh in our in our brain, in our heads, create consciousness and experiences and plans for the future? And we can put a man on the moon and chat GPI and commit atrocities. How, how does this this thing in our, our, our head make us do that? I mean, that's the biggest mystery of all. So what advice would you give to someone who's considering a career in medicine? Go into it for the right reasons, that you really enjoy studying the human body, uh, that you enjoy, and I, I suppose I haven't brought this up as much as I, I, I should have, but that you enjoy helping people, um, that, uh, and, and, and if you have done this, you know, really pick the field of medicine that you think that you're going to be the happiest at. So everything that I said about neurology uh, that I enjoy, a lot of people would find challenging dealing with chronic illnesses that you can't help. So a lot of my patients with MS I've known for a decade now, which I find very rewarding, but I've seen some of them start off walking and go to a wheelchair and they're young and you just kind of do everything you can, but you're powerless. It's, it's kind of like trying to stop the tide from coming in at times. Uh, so you have to know that about yourself and be be aware that there's going to be patients that you can't help. And if you're the kind of person who can't deal with that, then you shouldn't go into medicine or you should go into a field uh, like ophthalmology and removing cataracts. You know, someone comes in, they can't see, you snip, snip, and they walk out and they, you can see. And, and um uh, so, so I think that those are the most important things and it's going to be a long road. Uh, and depending on where you live, you, you know, you may get paid very well. You may not get paid very well. Let's move on to your book. Then you have a, a new book that is coming out this year, I believe. What is it called and what is it about? So the title of the book, and it should be out uh, in April of 2023 is called, we want them infected. And that is taken from a quote by uh, a Canadian epidemiologist by the name of Paul Alexander, who was uh, uh, working in the Trump administration during COVID. And the title of the book really explains it all. We want them infected. There was uh, shockingly uh, a very powerful, very influential purposeful movement to infect, uh, and I sound like Kelly Brogan with her conspiracy theories now, but to infect young people, uh, children, young adults. And when I say young adults, I'm talking about people in their 50s uh, with, with COVID, uh, with the dream that this would create herd immunity and uh, make the virus go away. And while doctors like myself uh, were working throughout New York City's COVID surge, uh, there were people, other doctors who weren't there with us at the bedside, working equally hard to convince Americans that COVID's threat was overblown, that it was a threat only to our grandparents, uh, and that it was all going away. And these doctors were not like Kelly Brogan in that they were not easily identifiable as quacks, that they had very good reputations prior to the pandemic. Not all of them were famous, though some of them were. And unlike Dr. Brogan, they were very influential. They gave, uh, you know, one thing about Dr. Brogan is I think her media footprint shrank during the pandemic. She was not interviewed uh, on CNN. She was not interviewed in the Washington Post or the New York Times. I, I think she got banned from Facebook and even Twitter for a little bit. Maybe she's back on. Who knows? 
but I don't think he was very influential. I don't think many people uh, were about to get the COVID vaccine. Then they heard one of her videos and decided not to. Uh, all of the doctors that that I speak about and write about were extremely influential. And unlike her, they mixed good advice with bad advice. So they would say COVID is devastating for older people and people in nursing homes. Um, so they seem to take it very seriously from that perspective. But then they said it was just like just the flu for, for, for everyone else. Also, unlike Dr. Brogan, they claim to be men and women of science and data. So if you ask them about their sort of general approach to medical decision making, it would be no different than mine, right? So we all say, I look at the evidence, I try to follow the data, I try to follow logic, reason, science, you know, not, not Dr. Brogan's tarot cards. Um, so that's the title of the book. And it's really the story of how Dr. Brogan's ideas and her approach to medicine infiltrated our, you know, kind of won the pandemic, at least with regards to young people. How would you describe your book's intended audience? So I think it's any it, it, it's it's meant for lay people. It's 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 not a medical book, or to the extent that it is a medical book, it's it's a medical ethics book. I, I, I think, but it is it is an attempt to tell the story of the pandemic. You know, how did things go so wrong here, especially in the United States? So uh, before the pandemic, there, uh, Johns Hopkins University made a list of the top 195 countries that were best prepared to handle an pandemic, and the United States was number one. And we ended up being one of the worst. And so what went wrong? How did things go so wrong? You know, we're the country that developed the mRNA vaccines. You know, we're the can-do country, um, you know, with all the best scientists and laboratories and universities. You know, obviously we don't have all the best, but you get the, you know, this is, this is how we think of ourselves. And we had maybe after the UK, uh, and a few other, you know, less resource-rich countries, uh, you know, one one of the worst pandemic responses. So my 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 book is an attempt to tell the story of what went wrong. And there's a thousand explanations for for what went wrong. You know, ranging from uh, here in, in in New York State, uh, our governor sending patients with COVID to nursing homes, uh, to our current president Joe Biden admitting that he forgot about the pandemic. Um, but my story attempts to tell a, a slice of that, which is uh, the role that influential doctors played, uh, both in the media and at the highest levels of the Trump administration and advising Florida, back to Florida again, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So it really tells the story of how doctors minimize COVID. They purposefully tried to spread the virus. They repeatedly declared the pandemic over every month of the pandemic. They mocked, humiliated, and shamed anyone who tried to avoid the virus even before they were vaccinated. And they used every single idea, every single anti-vaccine idea that I heard about the MMR and the HPV vaccine in 2015, 16, 17, and 18 uh, from quack doctors was regurgitated almost verbatim uh, by doctors at Stanford and Harvard and UCSF, uh, University of California, San Francisco, some of our, our top uh, 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 and Johns Hopkins. These doctors would deny this. They would you know, be horribly offended to hear that they are being 
called anti-vaccine in any way or linked with the anti-vaccine movement, they would say, I'm so pro-vaccine, you know, that I worry more about, you know, we must vaccinate kids against measles, not COVID, as if those two vaccines are in competition with each other in some ways. Or ignoring the fact that measles hasn't killed children in the United States since 1991. Uh, I think that's the last time a child died of measles here. But, uh, you know, in January 2022, nearly 200 American children died of COVID. So, uh, you know, they treat COVID as this completely benign childhood disease. And that's ironic, of course, because as low, relatively speaking, as the case fatality rate of COVID is, is still quite a bit higher than measles, at least higher than, than measles in a well-vaccinated country. And yet we still vaccinate for measles. Uh, and, you know, this is the this is one of the arguments anti-vaxxers go, well, people aren't dying of these diseases anymore. Of course they're not, because we vaccinate for them. And also because we, if it were for some of them, we've developed some quite effective treatments that simply weren't around in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and even early 20th centuries. We can now treat some of these even if they do slip past the vaccine. So it's, you know, it's they're complete, they're looking at, at uh, the wrong evidence for the right conclusions and, and sometimes vice versa. Correct. I mean, the idea, the, the fact that vaccines work so well is is evidence is used uh, by anti-vaxxers as evidence that they're not necessary. And we saw this with COVID as well. Uh, the fact that we protected children at the beginning of the pandemic was used as evidence that they didn't need protection. So, for example, a lot of doctors would say, oh, you know, many more children die of suicide. Therefore, COVID is no big deal, which is false for two reasons. Number one is, yes, had we let COVID run through 73 million American children at the start of the pandemic, hospitals would have been overwhelmed and more children would have died of COVID than suicide. So, I, you know, I feel confident saying that. Um, that's point one. Uh, point two is, uh, just to go back to this comparison, because it's a silly comparison, is at least especially when it comes to vaccines, uh, it doesn't matter where COVID, you know, the fact that, that more children die of suicide is not a good reason to let some unvaccinated children suffer or die of COVID. Uh, but it's a very, very common one. I mean, for example, more children die of suicide than drown. Uh, but I'm careful when my kids are in the pool. When they were younger, I was, you know, we have fences around pools. We have swimming lessons. We have floaty flotation devices. We go through great lengths to try to stop our children from drowning. And anyone who said, eh, don't worry about it, more children die of suicide would be instantly viewed as a loon. But that sort of thinking became very, very common uh, during the pandemic with regards to doctors, some doctors. At the outset of the pandemic, many people, and as I believe you mentioned in your book, many of them even well-qualified, well-experienced doctors, argued that the pandemic could be largely mitigated by protecting the elderly and pretty much allowing everyone else to go about their lives without imposing special conditions like mask mandates and lockdowns. Do you think that was a viable strategy? And, and if not, why not? So I don't think we have to ask the question if. 
um, nowhere in the world used what this is, this strategy was called focus protection. Nowhere in the world used focus protection to protect the vulnerable, allowed her herd immunity to build up in the young and make the virus go bye-bye. So all of the doctors who espoused this grossly underestimated COVID at the start of the pandemic. Um, they were saying it was going to kill 10,000 people. No, it's going to kill 40,000 people. It's, you know, it's much, much less dangerous than the flu, at least for, for younger people. So all of these people greatly underestimated COVID. That, that's point one. I don't think that their fear of lockdowns was necessarily wrong in that we should always think about the worst case scenario. So a lot of people wondered what are going to be the consequences of shutting down businesses and schools and trapping people in their homes? You know, is other regular healthcare going to suffer? Is learning going to suffer? Are people going to become depressed and commit suicide and businesses are going to fail? So I, I, don't, I don't blame anyone for, for worrying about the negative consequences of, of lockdowns. But there were many, many problems with this idea that we could just protect the vulnerable. Uh, the first of them is, how do you identify who's vulnerable? I mean, you can, you can they, they sort of treated vulnerable as a binary, yes or no. So, you know, an 80-year-old with hypertension, diabetes, and cancer is vulnerable. A healthy 10-year-old is not vulnerable, although some healthy 10-year-old children have died of COVID. Not many, but it's happened. But there's a huge spectrum in between. <laughs> and by the time you get to add up, you know, all of these people who may be considered vulnerable, uh, at least here in the United space, States, especially given the rates of obesity, uh, it's and it's half the country. It's tens of millions of, uh, of people. Um, so that's point one. Point two is that the people who talked about protecting the vulnerable this way, they really didn't view any outcome other than death as problematic. So they sort of acted as if either you got COVID and died, or you made a full recovery from which you were permanently immune. That was their sort of philosophy at the time. The third problem is protecting the vulnerable in the ways that they proposed is much easier said than done. So we're talking about the Great Barrington Declaration here, which was published uh, on October 4th, 2020. And everyone listening to this podcast now should pause. If you haven't already, go to the Great Barrington Declaration website, read it, read their Frequently Asked Questions page. And when you are done after five minutes, Please come back and, and start listening again. But their, 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 their plan to hermetically seal off tens of millions of vulnerable Americans from non-vulnerable Americans was written, you know, it's, as I just got done saying, you can read it in five minutes. It was probably written in a couple hours. And it's really not a plan. It's just a wish list. It's just a list almost of demands of public health officials. So what am I talking about? So one of their plans, uh, one of their uh, ideas uh, was that uh, seniors could have food delivered at home. Okay, that sounds nice. But once they wrote that sentence, seniors can have food delivered at home, they were done. That was it. That was the extent that they planned it out. It was up to Underwhel are overwhelmed, under-resourced public health officials who they villainized uh, to actually figure out 
how to get food, you know, in, into the homes of vulnerable people. So it was just full of these sort of extremely wishful thinking ideas or ideas that were kind of common sense that had been uh, that that had been done since the start of the pandemic, such as having nursing home members wear N95 masks. I mean, you know, very not controversial things that people should uh, eat outside, uh, meet outside when possible. So it was either very common sense things or things that were impossible, but they had two visions. They had COVID zero for people whom they deemed vulnerable, and they had kind of COVID infinity for everyone else. And they kind of felt that you could completely and hermetically separate these two groups of people that herd immunity would arrive in three to six months. So it was exactly what we all want to hear. And I'm not making that up. You can go into the Great Barrington Declaration website uh, and find that now. And one interesting thing is, best I can tell, almost all of the people who either wrote the Great Barrington Declaration or supported it, they didn't want to be part of the herd. They wanted the herd to be there for them. So if you're listening to this and you are, find yourself sympathetic to the Great Barrington Declaration, ask yourself, did you go out and get COVID before you were vaccinated? Because those were your instructions, and they wrote about it as a moral obligation. They wrote about it as young people have a duty to go out and get infected. Uh, one of the three authors, Martin Kuldorf, uh, uh, likened it to soldiers marching into war. He said, you know, your grandparents in World War II went off to battle, and you're, we're asking you to take a risk. for, for It's a much smaller risk, um, and, but they spoke about it as a, a sort of moral obligation. And of course, as I just got done saying, it was published on October 4th, uh, 2020. And less than two months later, it became completely obsolete when vaccinations started. So they had at that point, they could sort of say, hey, great, this is, you know, we can trash this up and let's just vaccinate everyone. Or they could maintain allegiance to their declaration, which they did and say, nope, we still want young people to get infected. And to this day, they still push for young, for, for unvaccinated people to, to get COVID. And you might ask yourself, how many people are there who have either not been vaccinated or not gotten COVID at this point? And there aren't many, but here in the United States, 12 million babies have been born since the start of the pandemic and they don't arrive with natural immunity and they still want them to get COVID. And they still claim, I, as far as I can tell, that herd immunity is just a few unvaccinated children catching COVID away. So this is what I mean when I say Dr. Brogan's ideas won the pandemic, because all of the ways that she used to argue uh, against, say, the measles vaccine, oh, it only killed 500 kids per year. Oh, more kids died of, uh, uh, you know, of, of suicide. Oh, we don't really know the long-term effects of the vaccine, or we don't know how this vaccine works in combination with all the other vaccines. It's never been studied, and the whole vaccination study has never been scheduled, studied in a randomized placebo double-blind controlled trial that's lasted the human lifespan. So you, all of the sort of fallacious arguments that anti-vaxxers used started coming out of the mouths of uh, people from Harvard and Stanford and UCSF. And politicians listened and parents listened. They were very successful. Pediatric vaccination rates are abysmal. And as a result, not a lot, 
not a lot, but some children are still dying of COVID and some are still getting sick. And it's just a tragedy because it's totally, almost totally avoidable for children with a vaccine. So you've you've conveniently brought me to my next question, uh, because as, as you said, and and this is still ongoing, many people resisted vaccinating children and infants for, for COVID when the vaccines became available, available for those demographics on the grounds that firstly, they're not vulnerable demographics. And secondly, uh, the vaccines might do more harm than good. Considering the amount of information and, and data we now have available on the vaccines and how effective they've been and the risks involved, what's your view on on this on this position? We don't need to vaccinate young children and infants, and we could do more harm by vaccinating them anyway with a vaccine that we still don't know much about. I mean, it's clear I've already from what you've said that you disagree with that. But what would you say to someone who says, well, the risk of a child catching and dying from this disease is very low already? Why are we even doing this? So it's true. The risk of a child dying of COVID is extremely low. I don't want to sound like a fear monger. You know, my children both had COVID after they were vaccinated, but my nieces and nephews uh, got the Delta variant before they were vaccinated. And they had them like 99.99% of children. They had a very, they had a runny nose for a few days and they're, they're, they're totally fine. Thank God. But, um, Sometimes the numerator is more important than the denominator. So if only one out of 10,000 children die of COVID, multiply that by 73 million American kids, and you have around 2,000 children who have died of COVID so far in the United States. And yeah, it's true. Other things kill more here, you know, car crashes, drownings. Here, of course, we're the gun capital of the world, and that's the number one killer of children in the United States. Uh, but I don't know. I think 2000 children is a lot of dead children. Uh, you know, I think if, you know, a high school exploded tomorrow and 2000 children died, uh, we wouldn't just brush that off. It would be a, a tragedy, which would be etched in our memory uh, for like like some of the school shootings are. And of course, death is not the only bad outcome from from COVID, even for, for children. And what are going to be the consequences of repeat infection? So if a, a baby born today they might get COVID 10 times by the time they turn 20. Who knows? Who knows? You know, what are the what are going to be the consequences of that? So the vaccine, the vaccine was studied in six randomized controlled trials in children. They were all pretty small, but uh, overall, about 25,000 children enrolled in vaccine RCTs. Some of them dropped out, uh, so not all of them completed it, but uh, that's not a small number of children for a vaccine randomized controlled trial. And at least here in the United States, the vaccines were approved uh, in sort of a stepwise order with teenagers going first, then elementary school children, and finally infants and, and, and toddlers. And this was done consciously because a 16 or 17 year old actually that they were included in the adult approvals but uh the 12 13 and 14 year olds they're not that different than 16 17 and 18 year olds so it was it was done in, in a very uh conscious way and in those randomized controlled trials of the adolescents the vaccine was a hundred percent effective at stopping covid it obviously isn't that effective now uh with with the new variants 
And there have since been about 25 observational studies from around the world, which have confirmed that the uh, virus, uh, that the vaccine has already prevented, no matter what happens in the future, the vaccine has already prevented uh, an enormous amount of suffering in and saved the lives of some children. And I, I think it's already proven its value that way. More children would still be alive today and have been spared suffering had more been vaccinated. And one thing is we don't know, we don't know whose lives were saved by the vaccine. You know, right now there's some child, uh, you know, who, who got vaccinated, who had their lives saved. We have no idea who they are. So we can't put them on a, on a, on a public uh, re relations campaign. Um, so the vaccine, just like for adults, it's not perfect, but it really limits grave harms, including uh, this this condition, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. I, I think they call it. A, they may call it a different thing. I think they call it a different thing in the UK. It goes by a different acronym. But this this post-infectious um, multi-system inflammatory disorder that can affect uh, healthy children, even uh, elementary school children. It's affected about ten thousand children here in the United States, and that has killed about seventy-five uh, children so far. Um, and, and, and the vaccine can, can take that and, and, and wipe it off. And this is comparable to, as, as you already alluded to, other vaccine preventable diseases, chickenpox, uh, hepatitis, rotavirus. So if you were flu, uh, so if you were for those vaccines, as I am and you should be, um, there's really no good reason to be uh, against the COVID vaccine. In terms of safety, the COVID vaccine, and, 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 I should say, um, you know, everything I'm saying about vaccinating children was probably more applicable two years ago when we, you know, before most children were infected. So now that nearly every American child has has had COVID, um, what is the value of vaccinating them? I still think it's there, uh, although it's probably much less robust. Uh, in other words, a child who has their second COVID infection, it, it's less likely to send them to the hospital or cause grave outcomes uh, than the first. And then when we talk about vaccine side effects, really just one emerged uh, of any seriousness, uh, and that is vaccine myocarditis. And I have never seen a medical side effect get so much attention as this one side effect. And this was done by doctors. So certain doctors who before the pandemic never cared about vaccines, never cared about cardiology, did everything they could, in my opinion, to just amplify this side effect and treat it as this total catastrophe. So what are the facts on vaccine myocarditis? Um, so the first thing is how often does it occur? And different studies have come to different conclusions based on this. It definitely occurs uh, much more in boys than in girls. It definitely occurs more after the second dose and it occurs more after the Moderna vaccine than the Pfizer vaccine. So here in the United States, up until very recently, uh, only the Moderna, um, only the uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine was given to teenagers. And I should say it doesn't occur in children under the age of 12. So the highest rate that I've seen has been about one in 5,000. 
The lowest rates that I've seen have been one in 20,000, one in 30,000. And even this may be a little bit of an overestimate because it depends on sort of how you define the condition. There was one study from Israel where they biopsied 60 people with suspected vaccine myocarditis and uh, something like a third of them hope I'm getting that number right, I think 20 out of the 60 ended up not having myocarditis on biopsy, even though they had all the symptoms and, you know, cardiac markers. So the number that I've been quoting has been about one in 10,000 boys after their second vaccine dose. I think that's a sort of reasonable middle ground number from all the studies that I've read. And so if you run the math, that runs, you know, depending, you know, how many children, how many adolescent boys got two vaccine doses in the United States. Uh, that's about a thousand teenagers under the age of eighteen who develop this condition, vaccine myocarditis. Okay, so now we know we have some sense of how common it is. Uh, fortunately, there every study agrees about the short-term prognosis of this condition, and every study every single one describes it as mild, benign, favorable short-term prognosis. People sometimes have gotten mad at me on social media. They've called me minimizing it for, for calling it mild because they would say, would you call it mild if your son developed myocarditis and went to the hospital and you know had to be restricted from playing sports for the next six months and maybe had a scar on their heart that could cause lifelong problems? You know, No, I would not call that mild. If that was my son, um, but this is a, this is what all of the studies show. So I'm just quoting literally every study when I call it mild. Most children are hospitalized usually for one to two days, mostly for observation. Uh, in the most recent case series of this out of Canada, uh, I think as doctors are gaining awareness of the condition, less than half of the children were hospitalized. They're just sending them home from the emergency room because they say, you know, no, you're going to be fine tomorrow. You don't need to spend the night. And, uh, you know, a handful of children have and, and have been made more sick. There, there have been a handful of very plausible cases of adults dying from this. Uh, so, you, you know, you don't want to minimize that. That that that's a big deal. But Again, if you if you think about the fact that a, a thousand children have had this, um, and during our the peak of our Omicron wave, uh, about a thousand children were being hospitalized every day with COVID. So, uh, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands to, to over a hundred thousand children have been hospitalized with COVID, and these hospitalizations can be much more severe. Again, most children do fine, but about a third go to the ICU. Uh, depending on the variants, five to 10% can end up intubated. Some children have needed lung transplants. Some have needed amputations. These again are rare, but these catastrophic outcomes just do not happen with vaccine myocarditis. Now we're going to have to wait and see what the long-term uh, consequences are. You know, some studies are finding cardiac scars, uh, but that can occur with the virus as well. So everyone who got mad at me for, for calling vaccine myocarditis mild called death from COVID mild. So, you know, the, these doctors would, would talk um, out of both sides of their mouth. When talking about the virus, they would talk in a very reassuring terms. Oh, the young have no risk. Old people die much more often. 
you know, the risk of dying is much less than, as I said, suicide. Uh, then when talking about the vaccine, they would just talk about it in these catastrophic terms. I don't think anyone can imagine the damage that vaccinating children were, are, are going to do. Um, you know, Dr. Vinay Prasad, who uh, an oncologist at UCSF, uh, has devoted 25 YouTube videos to this vaccine side effect. He has devoted long Twitter threads to this vaccine side effect. He has devoted countless articles to this vaccine side effect. The whole time saying we should stop talking about children who are killed by COVID, that any anyone who brings this up is fear-mongering or just you know, breathless. That's the term he used. They're just breathlessly talking about uh, children who are are killed by COVID. So a lot of doctors, and I mean this very seriously and very literally, treated this rare, mild vaccine side effect as a fate worse than death. And that's Kelly Brogan speaking. Thank you. That so was a long, a long <laughs> answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a very comprehensive answer, and it, it's exactly what I wanted. So thank you because you you covered every aspect of it and. Actually, I was t- discussing this with my my children just this morning, because we were we were talking about about the pandemic. Because I was driving them to school, and I said how frustrated I was that people were resisting getting their children vaccinated for for COVID, and and I said you know people forget that even if the child has a mild case and recovers quickly, for the entire period that the child is infected they are a potential disease vector that they and they could be passing the disease on to someone who is far more vulnerable suppose grandma comes and visits for the week uh your your son or daughter 9 years old has covid looks like little more than than a cold you might not even know that it's covid because we've been in the pandemic for a while you didn't bother getting your child tested just assume it's a cold no big deal grandma's there for a week she catches it it escalates rapidly. She's dead in a month. Now, obviously, that's a worst case scenario. But even a non-worst case scenario could leave an older person very gravely ill and potentially for the rest of whatever life they have left. And that's not something we would wish on anyone. And it infuriated me that the same people saying we need to protect the vulnerable demographics never actually discussed doing that by preventing the emergence of disease vectors in the form of infected children. And that's what the vaccines can do. I'll tell you how they dealt with that. Um, They claimed children don't spread the disease. So that was their solution to this problem. So if you read the Great Barrington Declaration, they asked, how do we protect older people living in multi-generational homes? And they said that older people who live with children are at no increased risk. Now, even if we pretend the original, co- you know, that children did not spread the original COVID variants, that is obviously not true today. And you would expect that these people would have, as the evidence changes, they would have adjusted their philosophy. But you would be wrong about that. Everything that they said, as best I can tell, about the virus in March 2020 and April 2020, when they thought 2,000 people or two, you know, 20,000 or 40,000 Americans were going to die, they haven't adjusted their opinions, at least in public, one bit. And that really shows that they put, in my in my belief, that they put ideology first 
rather than the science. A lot of people underestimated COVID at the beginning. A lot of people uh, weren't sort of mentally prepared for this idea that this could be the big one. You know, we've saw other coronaviruses kind of peter out, you know, here in the United States. You probably guys have, you guys probably feel this way too in, in Australia that there's kind of here and the rest of the world might as well be in a different galaxy. And, you know, what happens in China stays in China. Um, obviously, that, that, that's not the case today. But yeah, here in New York City, there have been thousands of COVID orphans. I think uh, one in 200 children has lost a parent due to COVID. You know, obviously, uh, not all of those uh, lives, not, not all of these parents got the virus from their children, but some did. Uh, here uh, in New York City, during the first six weeks of the pandemic, we had 74 school employees die. I mean, we have a big school program, but we had 30 teachers die. And uh, the people who argue that schools should always have been open, this sort of thing, that's a fine argument to make as long as you grapple with what the real world consequences of that would have been. How many teachers would have died had we not closed schools? How many more children would have brought the virus home to their relatives? I, I don't know the answer, but it's not zero as, as much as people like to pretend that it was. Back to this idea that the fact that we prevented something bad from happening means that we didn't have to do it at all. Another point, um, and it's it's sort of somewhat related to this because people were saying the more young people we get infected, as you said, the the faster we can achieve herd immunity. So, uh, at various stages of the pandemic, uh, predictions were made about when herd immunity could be reasonably achieved. How accurate were those predictions? And has any country actually achieved herd immunity yet, whether by vaccines or let, letting everyone get uh, infected or a combination of them? Um, yeah, I think people vastly underestimated uh, you know how how easily herd immunity would be achieved, and this is one chapter of my book. It's just about ten pages of doctors saying, especially right after we started vaccinating people in in winter twenty twenty and winter twenty twenty one, saying herd immunity was around the corner. And it's actually funny to read some of the shifting back to vaccinating children. The the shifting narratives used why children shouldn't get vaccinated. So in twenty twenty one. The reason that children didn't need vaccines is that COVID was going away. They were going to be protected by adult vaccinating, by, by adults being vaccinated. Fast forward one year, the exact same doctors are arguing that children don't need to be vaccinated because they've all had COVID already. And nowhere in between those two points did they pause and sort of say, hey, maybe we should vaccinate children. So it really shows that no matter what the data showed, they were going to be against vaccinating children. So no, I don't think there's anywhere where we've achieved herd immunity in the world. I mean, we're in a much better spot. Uh, you know, New York, you know, New York City is not going to need forklifts to move bodies into refrigerated trucks like we did at the start of the pandemic. Um, but if an unvaccinated person was to be plopped down in the middle of New York City today um, and lead a normal life, go to restaurants, bars and concerts, which many people do, I sometimes have done that myself, um, they're going to get COVID. 
right? In contrast, an unvaccinated person who uh, against the measles could easily live their whole life and, and it, it'd be risky. I wouldn't advise it, but they could, they could, they could get by and not be exposed to measles um, or certainly polio and diphtheria and pertussis. So, so a lot of smart scientists feel we may never reach herd immunity for COVID, at least not with our current vaccines, because just immunity wanes too quickly. So the whole Great Barrington Declaration, all of this, you know, let's let young people uh, get herd immunity was premised on the idea that essentially one and done. So if you read some of the early interviews uh, with with people uh, who, who espoused that philosophy, uh, it was, um, you know, young people will have robust in, uh, immunity that will protect them for years into the future, which is an astonishing thing to say about a virus that didn't exist until, you know, late 2019 or early 2020. Just the, the confidence that people spoke about this brand new virus, like they knew everything about it. And I should say, none of these doctors treated COVID patients. So there's, a, there's, there's something that they had in common with, 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 with Kelly Brogan. Um, while, while, while we were on the front lines, you know, seeing people die, seeing, you know, our, our colleagues get sick. I, I knew two doctors and a nurse who died. Um, you know, these people were on TV saying COVID's going away. It's just the flu. It's going to be fine. Um, and, you know, the fact that I worked with COVID patients doesn't make me right. Uh, but it means that I think I had skin in the game. If I minimize COVID for enough people, I was going to get more patients. I was going to put myself at risk. Obviously, I'm not that powerful. Nothing I said, you know, nothing, nothing I posted on Twitter was going to influence massive New Yorkers to to ignore COVID, uh, et cetera. But some of the doctors that I'm, I, I write about were, I mean, they were on on Fox News. They were on, uh, you know, they they in, you know. Donald Trump's uh, coronavirus czar, Scott Atlas, uh, you know, really embraced this philosophy. And if you read some of his articles from April 2020, he was saying it's just the flu. It's just going to it's going to go away. It's going to go away. And he insists that he was right about everything the whole time. Never treated a covid patient. Never will. Yeah, I, I did a series of infographics analyzing the. Trump administration's response to the pandemic from when it first broke all the way up to the end of 2020. And I was able to review quite a few of the emails that had been that had been released. So we could see some of the discussions that were had between people like Atlas and Alexander. And even as a layman, with my limited knowledge of science and medicine, I was shocked at the stuff I was reading. I was absolutely aghast at the decisions being made at a federal government level by qualified people who really should have known better and some of the breathtaking statements that they were making. It was just beyond belief. It's, it's, it's beyond belief. And, and, you know, we're back to the sort of same question that we face with Kelly Brogan. Like, what, what motivated them? I think for some of the doctors that I write about, uh, there was some degree of wishful thinking, this idea that they could kind of manifest reality, that if they said herd immunity is right around the corner, uh, you know, so Marty McCary, who's a surgeon at UCSF, just testified in front of Congress, wrote an article two years ago saying we're going to have herd immunity by April 2021, and then followed that up with another article, herd immunity is near despite Fauci's denial, 
in, in also in March 2021, then in May 2021 said, essentially, we've reached herd immunity. Don't believe the scaremongering about variants. And then, of course, the Delta version arrived, the Delta variant arrived, and then the Omicron variant arrived, which he continued to minimize. He called Omicron Omicold. He called it nature's vaccine uh, because it was supposedly so mild. Of course, Omicron killed 300,000 Americans in a year. Um, so I think a lot of these doctors sort of felt that they could will if they believed that, you know, if you believe it, it's true. Right. You know, uh, that that that's the best um, that 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 I can uh, say. And they also don't seem to mind being wrong in public, which is 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 something that that uh, I don't understand. Um, and a lot of people don't seem to mind that they have been wrong in public. So, you know, doctors who predicted, not, not that they just predict that herd immunity would arrive in the spring of 21, they said herd immunity had arrived. They, they, they said that in the spring of 2021. And, and, and again, this is where they, the mocking of people came in. You know, Dr. McCary wrote a bunch of articles, oh, don't live your life in fear. You should stop living in fear. Um, and, you know, Sometimes fear is necessary without, you know, every single one of your ancestors, every single one, how many millions of ancestors you have lived in enough fear to make it to reproductive age. And graveyards are full of people who, who didn't live in fear, but they're not here now. So we don't hear their voices. People who regret not living in fear are for the most part silent. You know, some of them are, are pretty vocal about their experiences with long COVID or their, their prolonged hospitalizations. But, you know, people who died, we, we obviously don't hear from them anymore.